Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Forget the Wine. It's been a little while since we've come back together. Uh, this is Madeline, and I'm here in Minnesota with Laura. Yay! We can do this in person. It's so much uh, easier to be able to be face-to-face. Yes, and avoid those pesky technology issues over Skype, which neither of us seem to be able to figure out ever. Um, so today we're talking to you about Daisy Jones and Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid. And we both read this book, each read this book a while ago. Uh, it's got a lot of publicity, uh, a lot of celebrities, like uh, part of Reese's Book Club. And also it's going to be a TV series on Amazon? I believe so, yes. Yeah, yeah so it's gotten a lot of hype. Um, it's quieted down a bit, but I'm sure the hype will resurface when the uh, series comes out. Uh, and we'll get started with a little synopsis from Laura. Yeah, so the structure of this book is pretty unique. Um, it's told as an oral history, like um, an extended Rolling Stone article of a fictional band called Daisy Jones and the Six. And I will jump into the publisher's synopsis. Daisy is a girl coming of age in Los Angeles in the late 60s, sneaking into clubs on the Sunset Strip, sleeping with rock stars, and dreaming of swimming, singing at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Also, getting noticed is The Six, a band led by the brooding Billy Dunn. On the eve of their first tour, his girlfriend Camilla finds out she's pregnant, and with the pressure of impending fatherhood and fame, Billy goes a little wild on the road. Daisy and Billy cross paths when a producer realizes that the key to supercharged success is to put the two together. What happens next will become the stuff of legend. The making of that legend is chronicled in this riveting and unforgettable novel written as an oral history of one of the biggest bands of the 70s. Great. So I told you this confession, Laura, but I will also confess to our listeners. I got this on audiobook with the library app. It's amazing. Overdrive. And I started listening to it while I was on the bus in India between Manali and Parvati Valley, which I think it was like a five-hour trip. And I truly believed this was a nonfiction collection about a real band when I started listening to it because I blame the travel brain uh, that I had at the time. But uh, it really, she really did a good job of putting together this kind of um, nonfiction-esque structure um and then of course i remembered wait this is on reese's book club and it <laughs> says fiction and also there is a whole cast <laughs> uh, for this audiobook so that was a little embarrassing when i realized nope it's fiction and daisy jones does not exist <laughs> and i think that's one of the strengths of the books and actually when i was just googling um for a synopsis of the book i googled like daisy jones uh synopsis and the first result under daisy jones synopsis is is daisy jones and the six a real band so i think mm-hmm. you are not alone in your thinking um and i just think that the tone that Taylor Jenkins Reid establishes uh, with the distinctive voices. Um, The oral history is cobbled together by, gosh, there are probably like 20 to 25 contributors who are interviewed Mm -hmm. um, as storytellers. And they're all given distinctive and realistic voices such that I, I really don't think it's off mark to believe Um, that it is real um, until you start getting into some of the lyrics of the songs. But I believe you realized it before then. Yes, and I remember listening to it and thinking, wow, these 
are they, do they get the real people on the audiobook? These characters? <laughs> and the editor did sh- such a great job. These characters are so articulate and well-spoken, and it really reads like fiction. You know, it's this kind of trend, too, with nonfiction. Um, books coming out that they read like fiction. So that warped my mind a little bit. <laughs> but I guess um, Taylor Jenkins Reid did a lot of um, research on this format before she started writing the book. I think one of her sources was the Eagles documentary uh, that that was on, I think it was a film or something like that. And she also watched VH1 Behind the Music. Yeah. Um, so she really, I think she did have a couple of sources that she really um, used to help like inspire the tone and the setup for it. But she did use it very well. I think sometimes like I can see maybe a lesser writer using this format and not being able to weave such a great plot and narrative and create such wonderful characters as well. But she was able to use it in a greatly beneficial way, I thought. Mm. Yeah, so... um to give you a sense of kind of the two main characters of this book, um, there's, of course, Daisy Jones, and she's this kind of wayfish, beautiful, pill-addicted uh, 60s muse and artist in her own right, um, who's incredibly stylish. She's a mess. She's maybe maybe the first manic pixie dream girl. Yeah. that One of the first incarnations. Um mm-hmm. And she's singing in clubs, and ultimately, uh, like the synopsis said, she is placed together by industry types with a more successful rock band fronted by Billy Dunn. Mm-hmm. What I always think of in Bill- with Billy Dunn is um, Jenkins Reid is very specific about he's how he's always dressed in like head to toe denim. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He's a very traditional, like folksy. 70s rock star. Mm. Yeah. I think he's supposed to be really sexy, but really mm. artistic really and talented. talented. Yes. Um, and with that, he is struggles with infidelity and with drugs as well. Yeah, I loved this interplay between... Um, and we first meet Daisy and Billy um, in their separate lives before they come together to form this group. And... I think that Jenkins Reid did a really amazing job of like exploring their addictive personalities and exploring their characters and how different circumstances affected um, their addictions and how their addictive personalities sort of manifested. Um, so I really loved that interplay, and of course, as we'll, as we see later, there's perhaps some romance. There's that clashing of talent. I think that was one of the other reasons that Jenkins Reid wrote this book is that she was personally really interested in how romantic relationships and art artistic collaboration came together with um real singers and real artists of that time um and she was like what what is the story behind this so she wrote this book as kind of an investigation of that yeah i mean i think one of the immediate parallels that I thought of when reading this book, I mean, all you have to do is look at the cover, and I think, like, Stevie Nicks is one of the first figures that come to mind. And I was reading a blog post on Taylor Jenkins Reid's site, and she describes watching a Fleetwood Mac concert on TV when she was 13. 
And at that age, even, she clocked how deeply Lindsay Buckingham was in love with Stevie Nicks just based on a single look Mm -hmm. that he gave to her across the stage um, when she was singing. And she told her mom about it. And um, her mind was blown when her mom was like, oh, no, they'd been broken up for years at the time that she saw that performance. And Jenkins Reid thought to herself, but they love each other. I saw that with my own eyes. And Mm -hmm. I just thought that that story was kind of an encapsulation of what I loved about Daisy Jones and the Six is that she was able to describe that kind of love that should Mm -hmm. that you feel like this is so simple and perfect and I can see it they love each other they're supposed to be together like it feels simple but then when you back up you see all the complications and reasons Mm -hmm. why it doesn't work and like the pain behind it and you say "Hmm, maybe they're really not a perfect match Mm -hmm. um but their art and their talent really makes you feel like they should be so drawn to each other Mm -hmm. she did a great job of of describing that and making you feel like it was like this modern behind the music fairy tale yeah i think that was one of the best parts of the book absolutely in terms of the some of the other themes feminism was a a huge theme in this book navigating a man's world um as a woman in the music industry in the 70s And I think that's another reason why this book has been so popular is she really put her finger on the pulse of what women want to be reading right now in 2019, soon to be 2020. Um, So I thought that those themes uh, really, that was another big reason why this book was so wildly popular when it came out this last year. Um, And we see that in other areas of pop culture, like these reimaginings of the past or like putting kind of these modern women in past situations. I don't know if it's like kind of a cathartic thing or um, or if it's just trying to wrap our head around what's happening now by looking back at history. But um, I personally... When it comes to Daisy Jones in particular, she was a really interesting character because, like you said, she was kind of this like wayfish, beautiful, rawly talented woman. She she was amused other male artists, but she also says a lot. She makes it a very big point that she wants to make her own way. She wants to be an artist in her own right. A one line that really stuck with me, like, was that she, when she says, "I had absolutely no." <laughs> no, no, no. You're fine. Are you okay? That's all there is. Okay. <laughs> okay. I had absolutely no interest in being somebody else's muse. I am not a muse. I am the somebody. End of fucking story. And so that makes it very clear. And I think that was a line that a lot of women were like, whoa, yeah, you know, when they read the book. Um, and she also doesn't flirt or act like a dude. She doesn't try to play up to the feminine tropes and she doesn't try to be hyper-masculine either. She just exists and doesn't care about what anybody thinks and one of her big um, character elements is that she always she's never wearing enough clothes and so when she goes into a recording studio she's always freezing and wearing you know a, a crop top without a bra and really short shorts and um she's in that way she's really like in control in control of her own sexuality and she's always saying it's not my responsibility how you react to my body um so 
I so I was really interested by Daisy Jones as a character, but I didn't always agree with uh, resound with some of those themes of being her being so aggressive and um and you know so in your face like if you can't deal with it then fuck you but I think a lot of other women really enjoyed that about Daisy Jones yeah I mean I think it took until me reading your notes on this book to even notice how much of that kind of modern lens of feminism there was included here and that's mostly because I just had so much fun with this book that I yeah. really was not being analytical when I read it. Like I was so swept up. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of those things like Daisy saying, I am not somebody's muse. I'm just an artist in my own right. End of story. I think a lot of that is her being defensive mm-hmm. um, and her saying, I mean, it is her speaking in first person. It's an interview. So mm-hmm. I think we're supposed to see through that a little bit. And I think we're supposed to know that she's putting on um, a, a brave face where she actually is more vulnerable underneath that. Yeah. So it, it didn't bother me as much. And I also thought it was significant that... Um, there's a female friend and mentor that she has in the book that is always coming to her rescue all the time. Mm -hmm. She um, has a failed marriage at some point in the book. She is on drugs in Thailand at one part of the book, and it's always this older female friend that she calls to get her out of these situations. It's not a man. Um, So I think we are seeing, A, Daisy's vulnerability there. She does lean on other people, and B, that it is a a female friendship coming to the rescue. Um, But definitely the part of the book that jumped out at me that was focused on feminism was the character of Karen. Um, Karen was the drummer in the mm-hmm. band um, in the six. She was the pianist, right? The pianist, the keyboardist. It's been a little bit since I read this <laughs> book. We've tried to record this a couple times and we're uh, <laughs> thwarted by technology. So uh, we're happy to be able to do it in person now. But um, so the only other female member besides Daisy of Daisy Jones and the Six is Karen. And she is dating... Um, Billy's brother Graham and um, she has some interesting things to say about starting a family and the fact that she doesn't want that to be her only um, purpose and just the questioning of motherhood Um, Mm -hmm. and she says Sometimes I wonder if I was Graham, maybe I would have wanted a baby too. If I knew someone else would raise it, someone else would go, would let go of their dreams. Someone else would sacrifice and keep everything together. Well, I went and did what I wanted and came back on weekends. Maybe then I want, might want a baby too. Um, so I liked that part. And that part was more kind of in your face, uh, feminism of the seventies as it were. Yeah. I, so I really did. I know I said I was, had mixed feelings about Daisy Jones in that way, but I really do think her character was well-rounded. And like you said, we got to see her vulnerable sides as well. I forgot how much I really didn't like Karen. <laughs> Karen was like, ugh, which is horrible because in the audiobook, Judy Greer is Karen's voice, and I love Judy Greer. And she does an amazing job. Yes, she did a great job in the role, but everything Karen said, I was kind of, not all the time, but she was just too woke for me. Like, she was always <laughs> like, if it was a man, blah, blah, blah. But I do, I mean, part of that was in the 70s, they really did 
women really did face a very different world than we do today, of course. Right. Um, but uh, there are just so many of those like really cutting lines that she would say about it where I was like, okay, Karen, we, we get it. But that was my own, maybe my own personal, like once I had this idea of Karen being such a woke character and that was her purpose in the story, I, every time it came up then I noticed it. But I really did love her commentary on motherhood. I thought that part of it was really well done of saying her saying she didn't want to be a mother and um, Graham was just so confused and lost um, because he was so in love with Karen and always had been and she knew that and um, he just couldn't understand why she didn't want to be a mother. Um, so I thought that piece of the story was uh, really a really intriguing one and um, I felt really real to me from both those characters. I agree with you that I think Karen didn't get enough to do in the story and I think that resulted in um, her being a little bit one note with the kind of all she had to do was push back against the traditional mother, wife, two kids and a white picket fence structure that she felt was expected of her whereas Daisy's character had more to do more dimension it was just a little bit more well-rounded so mm-hmm. um I think she just didn't have enough we just didn't get enough time with her but I did sort of like that Karen and Daisy we did see two different kinds of, of feminism mm-hmm. represented in the same era. Like Karen was kind of this traditional second wave feminist who was very direct. Like if men get to have this freedom, I should have it too. Whereas Daisy was more of a kind of modern or third wave or even fourth wave kind of feminism mm-hmm. of like harnessing my sexual power is taking back the male gaze and a more (laughs) like Instagram kind of feminism that uh, is popular now. And I thought kind of the tension between Karen and Daisy because Karen saw Daisy's embrace of her femininity and sexuality and and using that as its power over men. It's kind of an easy way out. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas Karen was kind of like in the trenches trying to just make yes (laughs) yeah choosing to wear like certain clothes that would play down her femininity and really really adamant about and she was really resistant to grant like her relationship with graham and yeah um yeah and i i think like you were saying that something that epitomizes that kind of instagrammable (laughs) kind of feminism was the album cover they did yes. and the way that Jenkins Reid wrote that whole scene with the photography shoot, the tension between all the bandmates, and then the final image of the cover and how it affected the whole era and women of that era. Um, I, I mean, I loved how she wrote that imagery. Ugh, that's I, my favorite section of the book. And we yeah. should describe the um, cover. If you have a quote, otherwise I can just try to... Um, I, I, I think this is... I'm not sure if this is directly quoted, but it says, the album cover subtext of the photo, her chest is neither aimed at Billy nor the viewer. Daisy isn't trying to please you as the viewer or the man she's with, which is Billy. Um, Her message was my body, it it was not my body is for you. It was a self-possession. 
Yeah, so the image of this iconic album, they're doing a photo shoot out um, on this California vista, I believe, in front of some mountains. Mm -hmm. And Billy is wearing his traditional denim jacket and jeans. And Daisy is wearing a muscle, a white muscle tank with no bra on underneath. And you're Mm -hmm. able to clearly see through it. Mm -hmm. And there's tension between them the whole shoot. And finally, um, the iconic shot that they get is their chests um, only so you're not seeing their faces and they're angled just a little bit apart from each other so again their chests are facing out like you were saying um, and you can feel the tension between them they're still interacting with each other and the way Jenkins reads write it like I am not a person who visualizes characters or scenery or anything when I read and I read this book in February and I just recalled that like and I have such a clear image of this album cover and I found it totally believable that this would have been an iconic image from the 70s that did push culture forward in a really uh, a way that had impact on people. Um, I thought it was really amazing. Yeah, I loved that part of the because I personally am not super interested in the music industry or history of music or the way music is made. But she was able to write this book in a way where she captures the essence of it without going into a crazy amount of detail. All of the imagery um, and sh- and scenes that she has like go towards the narrative and the relationship and creating the characters. So, I mean, I think she did a really great job with making this a book that is accessible to people who don't have a huge interest in music and also making it immersive enough for people who really are interested in the music industry. Yeah, I'll say while we're heaping praise on her writing, um, the relationships in in this book, I have not rooted harder for some of the relationships in this novel, specifically Camilla and Billy, um, his first wife, and uh, Billy... And I I was so impressed that she was able to make me care so deeply about these characters and the relationships between them because usually the way that I'm drawn into relationships is through dialogue. And because of the format of this book, that it's an oral history, there's very little dialogue here. Mm -hmm. It's people describing events in their past. It's a lot of storytelling. Mm -hmm. Um, So even though that works in some ways against it because they didn't have a lot of that dialogue that really like puts you in the middle of these relationships and makes you viscerally feel things. Um, There's a really beautiful, like, nostalgic tone over everything because it is these people 40, 50 years later looking back on the times that really defined their lives um, and and describing them to you. I, that's really well put. And I think, too, um, we should talk about Camilla and Billy because that was one part of it that we disagreed on. I was not really, I mean, I wasn't, I struggle with putting this in words every time I talk about it. I wasn't against Camilla and Billy. I, think I hope not. I, <laughs> I know you're like about to punch me in the face. Um, I do think that it's what, okay. So Billy was, had an addiction when they started touring with his band, the six and he, they would go out on tour. He would be getting really fucked up taking tons of drugs, getting really drunk, and hooking up with groupies and random women. And at one point, Camilla is pregnant, and she goes and surprises him, and he's getting 
pleasured by someone when a woman when she walks into his trailer and she sees it and it's like holy shit um and he's so messed up that he doesn't even know what to do so she he continues on tour when he comes back they she says like does he come back for the birth of his child yeah yeah so he comes back for the birth of his child and she basically says to him you either need to get your shit together and go to rehab and then you can be in our lives or you just need to like not be in our lives um and so i think in a way it was important that he had this ulterior like this person who was pushing him to be a better person of course when it comes down to it it was really up to billy to get better and to it, it he couldn't just depend on camilla to help him with his addiction it was something that had to come from within him for it to work but because she was there telling him like these are your options and you have to choose and you have to choose your family um that gave him that motivation to do it but um, I'm trying to find this. And this uh, is, I remember this it. so distinctly from the last time we talked about this, um, is you and I see that interaction differently because mm-hmm. I feel like you see it as her giving him this ultimatum and kind of pressuring him into getting sober and saying like, choose us or the drugs. Like you can't mm-hmm. be with me if you're going to be this way. Um, more almost as a threat. And mm-hmm. I see it as a woman in crisis setting her boundaries Mm -hmm. saying like for me to be sane I cannot have a man who I'm worried about cheating on me who is addicted to drugs and alcohol Mm -hmm. around me and my child so if I'm going to continue to interact with me like these are the terms that you interact with me on and I know that that's a subtle difference but to me that's huge where it's Mm -hmm. like it's focused on her and saying like this is what I need for me to be okay versus like um, these are the terms that I have for you and you must change your behavior. Yeah, that's really how I read it, um, and I'm trying to look for the for a quote that um, that I wish we could go back and read that scene together because I. But, but yeah, it also is just how we hear it. Right. Yeah. And I don't even think, like, the the word choice would change my mind on it. Because I think it's, yeah. it's her intention, right? Is, yeah. it, is it for her to threaten him into living right? Or is it for her to be like, I cannot live this way. Here's what I need for you to do to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then also, uh, should we jump ahead to then... The relationship between Daisy and, and Billy and how it proceeds because that then affects uh, Camilla's role as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I think from the first time they meet, there's a magnetic pull between Daisy and Billy. Um, I think that in some ways this is like a pretty traditional love triangle setup is Daisy is the difficult magnetic complicated Mm -hmm. (laughs) difficult one to love and Camilla is the wife she's almost saintly in the book that that was another thing I really didn't like (laughs) about Camilla's character is that she's painted as like very grounded and perfect and and I guess it, it makes sense for the role that she was trying to fulfill like that 
Jenkins Reid wanted her to fulfill. But I think we can get into this as well when we talk about the ending of the book, which had yeah. its flaws. But I think that because of the oral history format, there are reasons that that character is being talked about by everyone who's being interviewed like she's perfect and an angel and a saint. Narrative reasons that worked okay for me. Um, but anyways, so Billy is drawn to Daisy. They make art together. They make music together. Um, and, and they feel a real draw to each other. And I think from immediately, Billy kind of admits to Daisy that she is not good for him to be around. She tempts him um, with drugs because Daisy is addicted to drugs. I know one description of Daisy that stood out to me is that she always just has random pills yeah. in the pockets of her fur coats, which is just such a 60s, like, yeah. iconic image it for really me. Um, it really is. And because I think that there's this spark between them and they can't... Um, be together they end up really fighting a lot so i think that the tension between them um, manifests itself in conflict so were you mm -hmm. rooting since you weren't as big of a camilla fan mm -hmm. um i really wasn't a daisy fan i found her to be like selfish irresponsible mm -hmm. irritating so i was always kind of wanting daisy to stay away from billy how did you yeah. feel about the relationship I didn't, I wasn't necessarily romantically rooting for Daisy and Billy because it really did look like a disaster waiting to happen. I, if anything, I was a fan of Billy in this book. Yes, I was like same. pro Billy and like, because I thought he was such a, I really loved how Jenkins recreated his character and um, uh, as this man who is rawly talented but also very greatly flawed and his dealing with his addictions and working through his, you know, love of Camilla, love of being a father while also having this lifestyle that he wants to create this art, but it's in such conflict with his ability to, um, to stay sober. And although he does remain sober, um, but I, I thought that tension of his sobriety and everything that he was clashing against, um, I, we we get to know Billy and we get to learn a lot about Billy's character. Um, so I I wasn't necessarily pro Billy and Daisy because that sounded like a dis, yeah like a hellfire storm, but uh, I also just really didn't. It seemed to me almost as if Camilla was emotionally controlling him, which might be a huge stretch, I realize. Yes, I see you say that. But but then in the end, when she speaks to Daisy, we see a, that side of her personality come out too. So you can view it as like she's just fighting to preserve her life and she's fighting to hold on to this person that she loves. But there was such... She truly believed that the only way she could be happy was if she was with Billy. And I think I'm remembering now another reason why I was struggling with Camille's character is because she was breeding this really strong sense of attachment between them. Like they could only be happy when they had each other and when they had their love, which I don't think is a healthy thing to have. And again, I was in India, like, <laughs> you know, like exploring all this uh, Buddhist philosophy about attachment and versus love. And, um, she just struck me as that kind of having that kind of force behind her. Um, so I, I agree. I wasn't really, 
I wasn't really thinking, oh, he needs to break up with Camilla or, oh, he needs to get together with Daisy. I was just noticing that. And that's why this book is so great. They're so human and they have, they're living such real lives in this fictional narrative. <laughs> to me, out of the three women that are really strong characters in this book, we have Daisy, her sense of bravado and strength seem totally put on to me. I think she hides behind addiction and sexuality and she's like a lot of it is fear like and Karen is like a lot of her strength is not there as well like she's always saying she doesn't want um this life as a mother and I think she's so hyper focused on that because she's worried she's making the wrong decision and for me when I read it Camilla was like the woman who had true strength Mm-hmm. And Billy describes her as like water all the time. Um, yeah, I have that quote here. Yeah. Uh, it, he says that uh, passion, it's fire. And fire is great, man, but we're made of water. Water is how we keep living. Water is what we need to survive. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I I love that. And I yeah, think I that, like that she too. was, like, the impression that I had of Camilla is that she's steady. She knows what she wants. And um, the moment in the hallway that you're referring to is she comes up to Daisy and basically tells Daisy, I know that there's tension between you and my husband, but I need you to know that you will never be with him. Oh, she, so you have the quote here. She says, we are bigger than you. I will not let him leave me. I decided I don't need perfect love. I want mine. I want my life. Things don't have to be perfect to be strong. I think you and I see that very differently mm-hmm. because I see that as her making an empowered decision of um, like, this is the life and the love that I want and I'm willing to sacrifice up until this line and I'll defend it up until this line Mm -hmm. um and you see it as like a scared person trying to defend their territory and like cling on to something that Mm -hmm. is not working yeah I that yeah I think you sum that up (laughs) (laughs) so it's super interesting that we're both reading this book which I think is like I mean this is definitely not the most complicated or intellectually difficult book that we've read no, um, this year. She just taps so strongly into people's emotions, I Yeah, think. so us having such a different interpretation of one of the major relationships here, I, I think is mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. yeah, and so in the end, we see that there is a blossoming sort of mutual respect and love between Billy and Daisy, and that... I think it was a Saturday Night Live performance where this moment passes between them while they're performing. They never have an affair. They never, it's nothing sexual or anything like that, but he realizes in that moment that he loves Daisy. And that then leads to Camilla approaching Daisy with her daughter and her child, which also was kind of manipulative to like be like this, come come at Daisy with her kid there and be like, fuck you, like, look at this, like, this is our family. Um, but I get it, like, if you're fighting for your life, like, then you're going to use all, all, all the resources you have, um, which uh, then leads to, uh, well, the dissolution of the band happens later. The band dissolves in a way that's not related to Billy and Daisy's relationship 
I think, right? How did they just, how did they break up? I can't recall. <laughs> I think there's they're at a concert, and that's what it's alluded to in the beginning of the book. They have a big falling out at a concert but because it's it Karen, ends up being Karen and Graham. Karen tells Graham she had an abortion, right? Yes, yes. Karen and Graham are broken up um, because she has she becomes pregnant and she gets an abortion, and then there's this one dude who's all. Is it Eddie? Who's always like... Angry. Really angry and jealous of Billy's talent and always feels overlooked and overshadowed. Um, and so everything comes to a head in this concert and the band is broken up forever. Um, so we're in the narrative looking back at this history and uh, we also find out that the person, the fictional person who collected this narrative and is writing the book about Daisy Jones and the Sixth is none other than Billy Dunn and Camilla's daughter, Julia. Hold for groans. <laughs> this is really revealed as this huge bombshell. Um, the narrator is not active um, in the book, like, the entire time until the last 15 pages. Like, it's an anonymous narrator, like it would be a journalist writing a piece in a magazine and then mm -hmm. all of a sudden there's this twist mm -hmm. and the interviews become dialogues with the interviewer which like with as Daisy. you said yeah. yes happens to be Camilla and Billy's daughter and we also learn that during the course of the interviews because Camilla has contributed to these interviews early in the book but during the course of the interviews, Camilla has passed away. Mm -hmm. From a battle with illness. Yes. And <laughs> this is one thing that Laura and I both <laughs> really loved about the book, was um, Camilla's final message to Billy and Daisy is that, uh, oh, or I think it's a message to Daisy. She says, Okay, now you guys can be together because I'm watching over you from heaven. You can write me a song. Thanks. Bye. Still watching over you. Still here. I'm the dead memory that hangs between you. Like, that part of it was just ugh, so stupid. I was, the ending was such a bummer for me. I was so emotionally invested. I felt like this was a really raw love story and the ending felt like a gimmick and it really yeah. cheapened the entire story for me. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't need it. The story the stood on its own. It absolutely could have just ended with the band being disillusioned and I think it would have, I'm sorry, dissolved and it would have fit the like melancholy tone of the novel so much more. Mm -hmm. Um to just say like, oh, have you spoken to Daisy since? And for Billy to say no. And to just have the reality be that they grew apart. Yeah. And that's what happens in life. Yeah. Um, this was incredibly saccharine, incredibly frustrating. It, it really disappointed me. Yeah. Yeah. After such a great consistency through the those two elements, that fact that the daughter was the person writing the book who supposedly had spent, you know, eight years on it. 
and um, the yeah Camilla's death mm-hmm. and her message, and that's again another reason why I didn't like Camilla is that she was like fuck you get out of my life to Daisy, and then she has the balls to say like once she, once I'm dead I'll I give you my blessing to be together. You owe me a song, wink, like. Do you think that was an editor's note? Because that felt out of character with, like, this whole ending. Do you think that they just needed something sensational? It could be. I have not yet read any other other, um, Taylor Jenkins Reid's books. I haven't either. Um, So I would, based on what she did with the plot in those other books, I feel like we would have a better idea. But it did feel very tacked on. Although, the thing with Julia being the... The, the person who put it together, that seemed like something that came from the yeah. to me. But the mm. ending with Camilla, I don't know. Oh, man. What a bummer. I, I'm, like, dejected all over again <laughs> remembering it. Because I loved this yeah. book yes. in so many ways uh, besides this. And I, I would still recommend reading it. It's really just the last 15 pages. And if you yeah. can just stop early, <laughs> yeah. you'll have a better experience. But I yeah. can't uh, stress how much I enjoyed reading this book. Do I think this was the best book I read of 2019? No. Mm-hmm. Didn't really make me think that much. But it was really but enjoyable. But it was so... It was by far the most fun mm-hmm. book I read of 2019. I was yeah. always racing to get back to it. Like, mm-hmm. I, it really sucked me in. I had a great time reading it. Yes, and we we both happened to listen to the audiobook version, which Oh my I, gosh. Yeah, which I hardly ever am able to do. To be honest, I've tried different audiobooks, and it's really not a format that works for me. I get really distracted. But with this audiobook, I was totally enthralled. It reads like, because it's cast, and the character's that were cast are so they do they're so well done. The man who plays Billy, whose name I can't remember, um, he do, does and the woman who plays Daisy, they do such an amazing job capturing the emotion and the and the acting. Really, yeah. they really act in this whole book, um, and it made it so enjoyable to listen to. I don't know if I had read it in paper format. I think it would have been a very different experience, and I may not have liked it as much. Yeah. I can't tell for sure. Yeah, I, I listened to, you know, 99% of mm-hmm. my book intake through audiobook format, and this was absolutely the best performance in any audiobook that I've heard this mm-hmm. year. Like, the full cast made such a difference, and um, with so many different perspectives in the oral history format it made it very easy to follow with the different voices for the characters so like eddie being the really aggressive band member the really jealous band member graham was really love struck and sensitive and very um but kind of a quieter second to billy um then there was another character who i totally forgot about um who is in the band I think he's the drummer who is a kind of a womanizer. Yeah. He's like a fun womanizer. Yeah. And you're like, oh, he's up to his shenanigans again, like getting slapped by flight attendants. Yes. And then he hooks up with like a, another fictionalized celebrity of the 1970s in the end and um, ends up getting married to her and having like a really cute romance. Um, so I loved those little side nuances um, with, with all of the characters. And I think... Each cast member did such a good job, like making a, even if they didn't have as much of a role in the book, like 
pulling us into it and being like, oh, I, I feel like I know this character now through their voice. Yeah, I'm excited to see um, the TV show version of it. I think that Jenkins Reed did such a good job of creating a really rich environment um and she described visuals so well like daisy's outfits how she got all these like beautiful halston sample dresses Mm -hmm. and i just can't wait to see it on screen i think it will either be really good or Or really really (laughs) because it totally depends i think on how they cast it if they cast for the looks and not for the acting because um, I can see them doing that with a show like this, to be honest. Amazon has a good track record. They I do have with, faith with, in them. With talent. And there are so many talented actors that, and actresses out there who do, like, um, who like I'm sure they're able to find someone who's a good actor who also fits the kind of, like, visualization of the character that seems so important in this. The challenge will be that the book had the... Um, benefit of just being able to tell us that they were beautiful like wonderful musicians and we would believe it they're gonna have to actually write songs for the tv shows and they are like i think jenkins ray was talking about that in some of her interviews um which again will either be really good or really fucking bad probably bad well like the weird musical number they had at the end of the audiobook i think they made like in the audiobook, they were like, hey, listen to a bonus of Aurora, one of the songs, but it sounded like that was struggle. elevator music was or like audiobook, like hold music. Yeah. It was very strange. And there yeah. were no words or lyrics. <laughs> I was yeah. like, you didn't need to include, include this, guys. Why? That was why, rough. Why? So I think we're both recommending that mm-hmm. people pick up this book. I mean, it's been one of the most popular books of 2019. So, um, I've read a bunch of the Reese's Book Club picks this year, actually, and this has been one of the only ones that I would stand behind with a recommendation. She's recommended some real losers and stinkers, so this one um, definitely is is strong. So, um, do you have recommendations for um, other books if people liked this one? Yes, I think um, Just Kids by Patti Smith and probably any of her memoirs. I have not actually read any of her memoirs, unfortunately, but I think she, uh, that's one of her main themes is that I've heard she, you know, she really, her artistic life is captured really well in it. So that would be my recommendation. Um, I am going to try to read uh, um, Evelyn and her I'm, I am going to try to read Oh, the seven album. wives or seven husbands of Evelyn, whatever. Yeah, let me just find it really quick. <laughs> we shouldn't just stumble through it. <laughs> I know. The, I do want to read also The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid. I have it on my bookshelf. I think it was also really well rated, but it didn't have the same acclaim. Um, that Reese's Book Club probably elevated this book as well. And... Um, I'm curious, Laura, really quickly, what other books from Reese's Book Club did you not enjoy before you go into this? Uh, Whisper Network and Conviction um, and One Night in December, One Day in December were all trash. Yeah, some of, looking at some of these book co- covers, I'm like... You can't judge a book by its cover, but I suffered through them and I can judge them and they were very <laughs> bad. Um, no, but no. I do have a recommendation for a great pick... Um, it's nonfiction, and it's called The Castle on Sunset, Life, Death, Love, Art, and Scandal at Hollywood's Chateau Marmont. Um, mm-hmm. And 
Actually, there's some scenes set at the Chateau Maman, um, the very famous hotel in Los Angeles, in Daisy Jones and the Six. Um, and this is just a nonfiction book about all eras of Hollywood and the Chateau Marmont's role in them. Um, and I found it to be like endlessly fascinating. And there's just so much intrigue and drama and mystery and legend around that hotel. And um, this book is like really well researched and incredibly interesting. It's one of the best nonfiction books I read this year. So that's The Castle on Sunset by Sean Levy. I'm going to have to put that on my list. It's very good. Do you want to recommend this one too? No. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so that wraps up what will hopefully be a successful recording of another episode of Forget the Wine. And look ahead, we are also going to be moving to a written format online, and we will tell you more about that coming soon. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Happy reading.